Welcome to On The Verge. This podcast will highlight interviews from entrepreneurs, musicians, and professional golfers. It will center around what tools they have used to help them reach their dreams, how they use golf to further their career, whether it be for escape from the rigors of their profession or to build more business, and how the communitas of wine, music, and golf enrich their lives. This is all about the enjoyment of life, rising above the struggles, and stretching past the best to be better every day. On The Verge. On The Verge is presented by Callaway Golf. The Apex Iron from Callaway defined a new category of player's irons. They combine the feeling and look of a forged iron with Callaway's leading distance technologies. With Apex, golfers experience an unmistakable leap in performance, and the new Apex is taking perfection even further. Callaway's 360 face cup, which makes everything better, generates industry-leading distance in the new Apex irons, and the unmatched feel will get every golfer's attention. This kind of power, distance, and control is not supposed to feel this great. Apex is in a class by itself. New tungsten weighting in each iron fine-tunes launch and trajectory throughout the set, which delivers a new level of precision in a stunning player's shape. The new Apex is the ultimate forged player's distance iron. The unmatched feel and distance, playability, and control are redefining the player's iron category. Again, once you experience an Apex, nothing else compares. This is Callaway's best for the best. See perfection in every shot with the new Apex at your local golf retailer or visit CallawayGolf.com and see what makes Callaway the number one iron in golf. Welcome to On The Verge. Today's special guest is in the wine industry, my favorite industry outside of the golf industry. He's the sommelier at the Marsh House at the Thompson Hotel in Nashville, Tennessee. Great buddy of mine and a, a partner in a cool venture that we do together, which is talk about major championships and wine and how they intertwine Tim Ronick. Tim, how are you today, buddy? I'm fantastic. Thank you. Well, as a uh, most people, we, we end up having this same conversation. It's like, you always wonder what it would be like to be a professional golfer, and I always wonder what it would be like to be a sommelier. How did you get involved in wine, and where did, where did you get steered into the, the path of a psalm? Yeah, it was um, like most restaurant paths. It was um, not on purpose. You know, you just kind of stumble into it. I was uh, getting my master's in music management in uh, New Jersey. William Patterson and was working at a local concert venue um, that had some big acts. It was about a 3,000 person venue and I was working as a production assistant and uh, when artists would come to town they needed they needed things. They needed drumsticks, they needed you know the best pizza, the best subs and they needed they needed everything and um, when they would stack stock their uh, <clears throat> their dressing rooms, we were responsible for that and they had to, we had to fill their concert riders and I didn't know anything about wine at the time. I'd, I'd been working in restaurants for about a year and I would go to a local wine boutique and I didn't know it at the time, but they were one of the best wine shops in New Jersey and just befriended a couple dudes and they were awesome. And the owner was really cool. She was, she was a golfer. She was a member at the local country club where I also caddied and they started telling me about some classes that were going on. I started trying some wines outside of the wines that I would get for the artists. Sometimes the artists would leave wines in their dressing room and and I'll take those home and just kind of see what was up with them. And I realized I really dug a lot more about wine than I thought. 
And uh, so I started taking, started taking classes. They offered the Wine and Spirits Education Trust, WSET, classes, which is uh, based out of London, but they do it's internationally recognized. And I took classes with them and got certified to the advanced level. And that was pretty... That was pretty much it. I was I was hooked at that point, and luckily I was in the restaurant business in Asbury Park, working as a restaurant manager while I was doing all these studies, and met someone at a golf tournament um, at Maribatali's golf outing. A friend of a friend worked for Maribatali at e- uh, Italy, and I get introduced to the GM at Otto, their uh, Enoteca Pizzeria and Pasta joint, and they gave me a shot at being a som there, and. And as soon as I became a psalm and or quote unquote became a psalm, I think you become a psalm when you start working in a restaurant or well, <laughs> pass a test. But as soon as I dug into this, you know, seven hundred and fifty label all Italian wine list, I was addicted. And I didn't I didn't turn back from there. What was the first bottle of wine that kinda like opened your eyes to, oh, this is not going to be just something I do re- recreationally. This is going to be my life. Yeah, it was bef- It was kind of in the beginning of my studies, the very beginning. Um, my best friend's father was a Bordeaux collector, and he was obsessed with Bordeaux. That's all he cared about was Bordeaux. And he, was, he had a doctorate in economics, and he would track the weather and track um, futures um, on Bordeaux. And he determined that dating back to the 90s, he would track weather and rainfall and determine that based on Robert Parker's recommendations, who he was also a big fan of, and the weather patterns, and he knew how to invest in futures of Bordeaux. And he wouldn't do first or second or even you know classified growth, growth Bordeaux. He would do kind of second-level Bordeaux and find value, as economists do. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I was over their house one day and he was just chirping me about wine so hard and I was just so lost. It's like this guy is such a geek. And <laughs> but uh but he opened a nineteen ninety Bordeaux. I couldn't tell you if it was right bank, left bank, who the producer was, I couldn't tell you anything. But I know that when I smelled that smelled that glass of wine, I was completely confused. And I'd never smelled anything like that before and it smelled like a barnyard. It smelled like like the purest leather smelled like my uncle's cigars and I drank it and I was I almost cried it was just so perfect and that was the first time I was like this is this is I didn't know this was possible Hmm. and I was that's when I was like okay there's there's a lot of layers to this that I should definitely look into (coughs) excuse me (coughs) Had a pollen sandwich. Um, you're big into Italian wine, and that's your that's your level of expertise. Partly because you got thrown into it, and partly because Italian wine is so awesome. When you think of your entrance and your expertise now in uh, Italian wine, is there a particular region that you love the most? Uh, it's tough. I mean, Italy's so uh, sectioned off. Uh, every region is so different. Twenty or twenty-one, depending on how you look at it. Wine regions. Um, I think Campania is probably my favorite region. I mean, yeah, I'd say Piedmont, where you get Barolo and Barbaresco, and um, there are some beautiful white wines up there. But that's a that's really red wine country um, in in Piedmont. Uh, but Campania has 
one I think is probably the greatest red wine in Italy, in my opinion. When it's good, it's uh, Alianico, um, or specifically Terrazzi, which is made with the Alianico grape. And then they have beautiful, food-friendly, and very different white varietals, Falangina, Fiano, um, Greco de Tufo. And it's just such a... <laughs> I haven't been there, but it seems like such a beautiful place, the Amalfi Coast, and... Uh, and the food just seems fantastic and very rich volcanic soils. And there's just so much to give in that region that I think it's so versatile. And uh, next trip to Italy will be to Campania so I could talk more about it. <laughs> yeah, that, that's going to be awesome. You know, I've always f- found that wine and food together is, a, is an amazing art that almost everybody enjoys. But it, it, that together with friends, family, et cetera, or even people that you don't know, but it's an exciting uh, gathering of like-minded people, that combination elevates a room, and it takes it to another level. And you get a chance to see that every day at the Marsh House because there's plenty of people going there to have lunch meetings, dinner meetings. As a, as a I would almost say, like a facilitator of the elevation – what is it that you sense that goes on with the wine food scenario that is what is it that lifts it up another notch? Uh, wine is I mean in Italy when you're talking about wine in Italy it's 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 not something they used to get, you, they used to get drunk. They use it as a condiment to the table. And I think that Americans quite haven't quite embraced that. They still like to use it get, to get drunk. But I think, uh, I don't know, I think wine is such a personal thing. And it's, it's based on so many moving parts. Like you said, the people you're with, the food you're, food you're enjoying. But, I mean, the weather, um, the kind of mood you're in, uh, what you're celebrating. Uh, there's so many moving parts that kind of dictate why you drink what you drink and you know i have a lot of guests that are just scared to death to talk to me because they think i'm gonna pick their pocket or you know make them spend 200 dollars on a bottle of wine or uh but ultimately i just want to i just want to make them happy i don't care if they spend 40 dollars or 400 dollars they walk out of there happy and even better by a second bottle you know we've created a relationship and I think that that will bring us together because that's how I remember guests. I, I forget everybody's name. <laughs> I know what they look like, but I always remember what they drink. And it's just another level of conversation. It's just another layer that gets added on to the the meal. And it gets you excited because it creates a point of reference or a frame of reference for your next bottle of wine. I like this bottle of wine because... It was had tart red fruit, and it was refreshing, and it was had a nice chill to it. And you're gonna chase that, just like you, just like you chased that perfect golf shot. Like you may shoot 95, but you hit a really good drive on 17, and that you're gonna you're gonna keep coming back because you had that real good shot. And that's the same thing with wine and food, and you have that one great bite, that that combination, and you chase it, and you take a picture, and you take some notes, or you know, we trade trade cards and we talk about it more and I make more recommendations and then you keep it's like I like I started, you just keep chasing. Yeah. And you keep chasing that uh the next great glass, that next next great sip, next great bottle. 
I'm not sure because I'm I've only been alive 45 years and I've only been drinking wine about 22 of them, 23 of them. But I'm not sure. That's a lot. I'm not sure that there's ever been a better time to in the winemaking world because when I first started uh, understanding and loving wine, I didn't think that there were many great 14 to 19 dollar bottles and now i'm thinking that there is um a, such a vast collection of incredible 18 to 25 dollar wines that it almost seems like there's there's two kinds of wine out there now there's the wines from 25 and under and then there's the wines from 100 and over because you can't almost survive in the middle kind of like a a pretty good public golf course (laughs) you either got to be super economy or the best of the best because it's hard to make it at 63 dollars a bottle why do you feel like that's the case is it something going on in the processes that makes it easier is it the technology or what do you think it is uh man it's it's a loaded question. I mean, I think that, and I think every question with wine is a loaded question. There's never black and white. There's never yeah. one answer. I, uh, I, well, first of all, I always tell guests that are in that ten to fifteen dollar retail range uh, that if they make a jump, if they say, "Hey, I'm just going to tweak my budget a little bit, maybe drink one less bottle of wine a week. If you drink four bottles of wine, you know you're going to learn a lot. Drop it to three. And you spend twenty five, or spend twenty to thirty dollars a bottle, or twenty to twenty five dollars a bottle, as opposed to ten to fifteen. The quality jump is 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 pretty significant, and the amount of collectible wines and the variety of wines that you're you know, exposed to between twenty and twenty five dollars is is massive. And you're right. Then there's this kind of like, you know. $25 bottle, $40 bottle, it's kind of the same. $60 bottle, I don't say it's the same. I mean, it depends on the bottle, but yeah, certainly. Uh, there's, I don't think the value, the incremental value is, is always worth it. It depends on how much money you got, too. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's an important factor. I think that one thing is that there's a lot of winemakers and farmers who are looking for quality vineyards outside of regulated areas uh, some examples in California they're spending a lot of time in um, a lot more winemaking in Mendocino and in the Sierra foothills and El Dorado um, on the far eastern end of California uh, they're finding you know they're in Champagne you can get great value in the Obe which is a very, the southernmost tip of Champagne there's tons of value in southern Burgundy and Italy, there's always crazy value. There's all these nooks and crannies where you're not paying the price for the land that you are in Champagne and Burgundy and Bordeaux and Napa and all these great regions. The winemaker's like, screw that. Like, I can make gorgeous wine, I don't want to say anywhere, but, you know, we can find value in a lot of phenomenal wine regions that aren't getting aren't getting the love because people don't recognize them on the label. Mm-hmm. So then you have this this push from winemakers, even winemakers from Napa that are like, I'm going to do a side project or their assistant winemakers doing a side project that gets a little following. And, you know, they can't 
you know, they can't afford to pay the prices for the grapes. So they're also not going to pass that price on to the guests. I mean, a master Somme once told me that wine costs the same to make. doesn't matter if you're in Bordeaux or Burgundy or wherever you are, wine costs the same to make. And the difference is how long do you age it and how much does the land cost? But wine costs the same to make. The margins are the same. So there's also this level of marketing. I know because my wine's from a certain region, I can probably push it a little harder because there's a following because, you know, it has vet, like people recognize the label that, you know, there's only so much to be said about that. Um, I just think that there's winemakers that want to be able to afford the wines that they make. Yeah, interesting. And they just, they're pushing it and they want, they know that the younger generations these days, the 25 to 35 year olds drinking wine, uh, can't all afford it. <laughs> and, but they're really hungry or thirsty and they're really curious. And they know that if they invest in that market, then it'll pay dividends. Interesting. Do you notice a unique, uh, taste or interesting conversation dealing with the 25 to 35 year old that comes to your restaurant when it comes to wine versus somebody like myself or slightly older? I think somebody like yourself or, you know, is more stubborn. Uh, they don't, they don't want to listen to me. They, mm -hmm. they, they, they like what they like and I don't want to, you know, knock them for that, but they go in and I think that, the difference between alcohol and food is that, like, with food, you're like, I'll trust the chef to make something really fantastic. Like, this is, you know, let the chef do what he's going to do. But then when the psalm comes over, it's like, well, I drink. Uh, this is what I drink at home. And uh, <laughs> you're going to give me something. You're going to give me that because that's what I drink. Or you're going to give me something very similar. I don't want to hear about uh, these cool new wines you have. Like, I drink what I drink. <laughs> so... You know, we're not preparing anything from scratch, so we're just kind of the middleman, and you're like, okay, you know, and they look at me, and I, I look younger than, I'm 35, I look younger, and they're like, well, I've been drinking longer than you've been alive, and they're not going to listen to me, <laughs> and, you know, and I'm, I'm not trying to teach anybody, I'm just trying to, you know, make them happy, and I think that when the older, the older generation is like, all right, I'm going to tell you what I want, and this is what I want, and you can go get it, and then move on, son. And the younger generation's like, hey, I'm really into wine. I just want to learn. I just want to try something different. Just, I don't know, what do you got? And they don't, they don't know what to say beyond that. They're just like, I like it dry. I like it, I don't like it sweet. I like, you know, and they have these keywords that they start to learn. And <laughs> so uh, they're just, you know, more open. Yeah, interesting. When you think of your Mount Rushmore of wines, the greatest wines that you've had, and you've had every, you've had so many different kinds of wine, so you could have, you double dipped and triple dipped your chip in awesomeness. When you think of the greatest Cabernet Sauvignon, what's the best one you've ever had? I don't know. I think, um, you know, I've never sat down and been able to enjoy an entire bottle of anything. Pretty much as a psalm in New York, especially, you taste every bottle before it goes out. 
So you get to taste some of the greatest wines in the world, but you just get to taste them. Yeah. <laughs> you don't get to <laughs> sit at the table and savor it. And sometimes I pour myself a half ounce and I got to make that half ounce last. And, uh, but, um, I was, I was kissed by, uh, it was like late nineties done. Um, I think it was 1999 done vineyards from Howell mountain. Mm. Uh, that was a pretty stunning bottle of wine. Um, and that, I was working in only Italian wine for about two and a half, three years, and I was a Cabernet hater. I was just like, doesn't have enough acidity. There's too much alcohol. It's, it's too clunky. And for every wine that you think you love and you think that's perfect, and for every region you think is perfect, there's plenty of crap out there within mm-hmm. that region, within that grape. And the opposite is uh, even more so true. If you say you hate Chardonnay, um, I guarantee you there's a Chardonnay out there that'll change your life. And so you hate Cabernet. Um, I mean, some will claim it's the greatest red varietal in the world. And it's, I mean, I mean, who's to say that 90, 1990 Bordeaux might have been all Cabernet that I had. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I don't even remember it. I don't remember if it was right or left bank. But mm-hmm. uh, I mean, that was probably the most memorable taste of something along those lines. But 1999 Dunn Howl Mountain was just a, just a rock and roll bottle of wine. I get excited because I got three of those. There you go. I haven't had one yet. Yeah, that's an anniversary year. For I, would, me. I would, I would, I would, I would, I would pop one of those pretty soon. Yeah, you just you got to you got to test the waters. Yeah, because every bottle's different, and uh, it was a hot time of year. It was a hot couple years. Uh, the two thousands have you know not fared as well as some people think. So ninety nine, I mean, uh, I think it was a slightly cooler year than two thousand. But I think it's 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 always worth if you have like enough three or four bottles. And you start to get into that drink now ish time. Yeah, it's good to say, "Hey, drink it." And if it's like holding on for dear life, just crush them all in a couple of weeks. And if it's <laughs> and if it's perfect, then say, "Okay, I can I can come back to this in a couple of months." But if it's tight, then you say, "Perfect." I, you can always decant it and let it rest, and then yeah, you'll get to it. Schaefer Hillside Select is my favorite. <laughs> I had that, and I was like. My goodness, that right there was the most intense, powerful. It was it was absolutely phen- phenomenal. It is in my it's it's one of the four greatest wines I've ever had. I've had a ninety five, a ninety seven, and a ninety nine, and they were all steel toed boot to the face with fruit and. The soil was amazing. I can't imagine what it's like to be what it what that what that soil's like where they pick the hillside mm-hmm. select grapes from. But it stands out in Napa Valley, and I've had some. I've been fortunate to have so many wonderful bottles. But that is that's the one that stands on its own in its in the Cabernet world. Yeah, it's a pure wine. I know you love Italian wine, so do I. And I'm so like your favorite Brunello. Um, I was lucky to have some uh, late '80s Poggio di Sotto. Uh, so, uh, you know, Biondi Santi is the best of the best, but uh, Poggio di Sotto is pretty magical. Yeah, that's really that's really good stuff. Barolo. Uh, Giacomo Conterno. Um. And then you know you 
move over into move over into Barbaresco, Bruno Giacosa, Marquesa de Grezzi. Mm-hmm. Those are some of the ones that are Vietti. Vietti is kind of that a little bit more approachable price point. Uh, v i e t t i. Uh, that's a really just everything they make is just beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, Barolo can get very rustic, um, but there's just some of Vietti. It always maintains this really pretty, pretty floral edge to it that um, I've always had a affection for. Yeah. For me, it's like when I think of Barolo, it is the wine that I forget that I love the most. Mm-hmm. When, I, when I'm going to pull out something amazing for whatever, I'll pull out, you know, who knows what I'll pull out, and I'll pull the cork and I'll pour a glass, and I'm like, ah, mm. damn it. Forgot yeah. that I wanted to drink the Barolo tonight. It's yeah. so frustrating to me because it is always like I have a nice collection of Bordeaux, especially from the great years from 2000 to 2008-ish. Mm-hmm. I have a, a slew of that. I love Pinot and have a lot of 99 Napa cabs because I, I, we went to Napa on our honeymoon. So I have all these. Yeah, I just went sl- after it. Yeah. Went, you know, I have all these 99s that I'm trying to. So I'll pull out a, a Stag's Leap or I'll pull out mm-hmm. a Penfolds or something like that. Next thing you know, I'm like. Oh, uh, ah, and I'll have to wait again and I'll forget it again. So I got like 11 bottles of Barolo that I've been waiting to have that are like the 2000, 2001, both pretty good years. Yeah. 2000 is a drink now. Oh, one's a, a gorgeous, really high acid year. Yeah, no doubt. Um, we did a, an awesome event where we tasted some, some Pinot's. And I've always been fascinated by Pinots and how the same, basically the same clone, whether it be in New Zealand, Willamette Valley, or in the in the in the heaven of Pinot, which would be Burgundy, uh, as well as other places, it is amazing how the similar or exact same clone can taste so radically different mm-hmm. in all parts of the world. Is Pinot the most finicky grape of them all? I mean, that's what they say. I think it's farming. It comes down to farming. I think that, you know, you can't make good wine out of bad grapes. Um, you can screw up good grapes and make bad wine. <laughs> but you can't, you got bad grapes, you can't make good wine. And I think that Pinot is a very thin-skinned varietal, susceptible to rot um, and mildew. Um, and if you get a rainy, um, you get a rainy, like, late summer, early harvest, you can run into some issues uh and I think that it doesn't react well to too much sun. Um, you know, it can't get in the sense that it, you can't build up those sugars too much. Mm-hmm. Um, those skins start to suffer, and then you just you get a high alcohol wine with no acidity. And and Pinot's got so much natural acidity, so it's you got to find that perfect time to strike. You gotta get it. You gotta baby it, and you gotta massage it throughout its life, and then. And then when it's ready to harvest, you got to find that that perfect time to strike. And then you got to be gentle in the 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 winery too. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to make it from there, but uh, too much. Uh, there's very few pinots with the balance of ripeness and acidity and alcohol that can stand up to much new wood. Uh, so you have to be really careful about if you put new wood on pinot, which uh, I prefer not to put any new wood on Pinot, but there are some, some out there that have blown my mind. Uh, you just got to be careful because it's, it's just a delicate wine and it's, it needs to just show its, 
you know, show itself in its true colors. And, and it's watching the winemakers in Burgundy and uh, some winemakers in California and, and all over the world, yeah. Um, and I'm going to learn more about Pinot. I'm going to Pinot Camp in Oregon in two weeks. Oh, nice. I to spend three days in the Willamette Valley and uh, with a bunch of producers and other professionals in, in the industry and get inundated with Pinot. So either I'll be madly in love with Pinot or I'll be sick of it. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? I keep on hearing, I have been able to talk with a bunch of people that are that are lovers of wine, and they all have said something in the last couple of weeks to me that they wish they drank more champagne. They just don't because they feel like it, in their head they have to be celebrating something <laughs> to, to drink it. What is your experience with champagne, and what do you? What, what's your feelings on champagne? Love it. It's uh, it's a beast. I had a sommelier that I worked with in New York, Ralph Dorsine. I'll never forget him. He uh, he had this. Um, he had an accent. He was Haitian, and he spoke like five languages. He was like the most amazing guy, and he loved champagne, and he just absolutely loved it. And he's like, Tim, when I'm happy, I drink champagne. When I'm sad, I drink champagne. He's like, I just always drink champagne. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think that people will spend so much effort saying, oh, I have to be celebrating. Um, you know, there's no there's no bad time for champagne. I think I went to Catbird's Seat uh, about a, from maybe it was my birthday. It was a year ago. And I brought a beautiful bottle of champagne. And I we bypassed their their pairing menu and I just drank a bottle of champagne and it rocked with every single course awesome. and it just it has weight it has acidity it has a touch of sugar um, it has texture it has depth of flavor um, it just it can go with so many dishes and you know I always joked that it as a cop out when someone used to be like you know you know, if you're having one wine that could pair with everything, oh, champagne, champagne. And, you know, there's a lot of truth to that. Um, champagne is incredibly, incredibly versatile. And, uh, you know, we should all drink more of it. It's just really, really expensive. <laughs> is there a reason why it's so expensive? Is the land. process? Oh, land. I think land is the, the biggest part, but it's also inventory. I mean, it's, you know, you're running a business and you're sitting on inventory and, you know, Champagne has to rest for at least two years, so a minimum of two years, and a lot of these producers will rest it for three, four, five years, ten years before releasing it. So wow. they've made something, and they're not getting any revenue for five years, but they still got to pay rent on their land. Oh my, yeah. I right. mean, you gotta when you do get paid, you got to make sure you're getting paid a lot, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and you gotta you gotta pay the bills and. Um, it's crazy, crazy expensive land in Champagne. And that's why the Aube, which is way south in Champagne, closer to Chablis, uh, there's a lot of good value there. And where your wines, you know, on a wine list are, can get closer to $100, $100 not 175 200 okay. What's the greatest wine you've ever had? I always said it was... Uh, Again, it's just me tasting. Yeah. Uh, it was at Balud Sud. There's a couple at Balud Sud um, in Manhattan. Uh, it was probably it was champagne. It was uh, Krug. 
Claude Menil. It was the very first vintage of Claude Menil. I believe it was 1979. Um, and I never had old champagne. I never had champagne. I had, I think I had 88, a sip of that, and I had some random 90 stuff. But I had 1979 crew Claude Menil, and there was a little ounce that a, a guest brought in the bottle and said, have, have some. <clears throat> and uh, I took a sip, and I had my back face to the dining room, and I turned into the dining room, and my I, my eyes started to water. And it wasn't even like tears of joy. It was just like literally a physical reaction because the acidity was so high, and like my face thought it was going numb. <laughs> I thought my face was going numb. And it was like it was it was surreal. It was it was mind blowing. Um, that was probably the greatest like physical reaction I've ever had to a bottle of wine. But 1995 Klopp, August Klopp uh, from Cornas in the Northern Rhone, 100% Syrah. Uh, it, he's always been my favorite producer. That uh, domain, pretty much my favorite producer in the world, or you know, top five. And mm-hmm. I I was lucky to have 95 and. Uh, that was stunning, and then I got to revisit it um, about eight months ago. Uh, someone bought, had some 95 and invited me over for dinner, and I got to drink two bottles of it, and then it's just such an epic, epic wine. That's awesome. Well, it's, when we talk, talk about the greatest, <clears throat> the conversation always wants to go, Jack Nicholas or Tiger Woods? And I know that you're slightly... You see my hat, right? <laughs> got, I got Frank yeah, on my yeah, hat. Frank on your hat. Tiger Woods is your impetus. He's the he's the leader in your clubhouse, mm. and uh, and he's so many people is the same. I mean, he when many people under the age of forty eight, fifty, when they think of golf, they think of Tiger, mm-hmm. and they don't think of Jack because it was before our time. And then we get these arguments all the time of well, Jack's got eighteen majors and. Now Tiger's got 15 and until he t- eclipses. It's a good ring to it, 15. It's, right. it's really good. <laughs> I heard 14 it. for a long time. Uh, I know it. <laughs> what, is, what does Tiger Woods mean to you when it comes to your golf and your entertainment? I'm like a – I'm like – I'm like – I'm Generation Facebook because Facebook came out when I was a junior in in, in college and it's like you, you, you never believe that you were a part of something that was – you know, now becomes such a crazy thing. I started playing golf in 1996, and I watched uh, him win uh, the amateur, and then I watched him on a small TV in my kitchen win the 97 Masters, and I was just like dumbstruck, awestruck, whatever. Yeah. Um, and you know, when you're in middle school and high school and you are at your, you're probably at your highest addiction level to the game of golf. Um, I just thought about it at all times. And every time I put on the TV, you know, he was winning and he was just doing incredible things. And, you know, the level of confidence he had and, you know, that when he would, and watching the Memorial this past weekend, you know, they kept on replaying all these shots that he hit at Memorial when he flubbed the chip and then chipped it in. Um, 99, he chipped in on, I think it was 14. And then when he chipped in, I guess it was five years ago on 16. Uh, you know, these crazy shots that he hit, these towering two irons that he hit from 240. Uh, when people weren't hitting greens, they were hitting three low three woods into greens from 240 back then. Yep. And, you know, and he would walk after it, and he would just show this, um, I won't call it cockiness, it's just, 
incredible confidence. Just like he knew when he hit that shot that it was going to be perfect. There was he knew exactly where it was going to land, and that level of control um, was just stunning. And then to know that he would he got that pumped up because he was that invested in it. I think he wanted to pump up the crowds, but I think he was just that pumped because he, you know, he put so much into every shot. Um, and it's just been magical to watch. I mean, to see it, you know, my wife <laughs> said she was just relieved that Tiger won the Masters because <laughs> she was, thought I was crazy. She's like, kept on saying, I'm like, no, he's going to be back. He'll be fine. He's going to be back. She's like, I'm just glad you're, you don't sound like an idiot anymore. Um, <laughs> so uh, who knows what he'll do now going forward, but uh, it's, it's, it's pretty magical. It looked it looked good yesterday. It looks sure like did. he's ready for. Uh, it looked good all. It looked good all week. I mean, he made. Ironically, he made mental errors all week. Yeah, uh, you didn't. You don't see that. Um, he just made some made some bad decisions, and uh, that cost him. You could count him probably six shots, and uh, but you know it's there, and you know he. You know it was like the match play two weeks before the Masters. He he could have he could have won the whole thing, but he just made a couple small boo boos. But you saw the the shots were there. And that's not dissimilar than from you know what he was doing now. His iron play is pretty spectacular, and the putter, knock on wood, looked fantastic. Yeah, in my opinion, Pebble Beach. He's, if he drives it good, he wins. Yeah, period. Because his the greens are so small at Pebble, and he doesn't have to hit driver a lot. He doesn't, he doesn't have to hit driver a lot. That's exactly right. But he's got to put it in play, and there's some really critical holes yeah. where it can that get really stretch, right. Yeah, the eight, nine, ten is a beast of golf. And there's a lot of like mundane holes at Pebble, you know. There's just a lot of like Parkland, sixteen. That's just kind of a whatever hole. I feel like sixteen's. Uh, well, uh, that's like to me. I maybe it's just because a lot of the first hole at Pebble Beach that I ever saw was sixteen. The little oh, okay. dog leg to the right, and the green kind of sits in there, and it's got a huge amount of slope to it. Yeah, yeah. And that's one of my favorite holes. But like, I'm thinking. Like three, four, five, fall asleep, wake up on six, go, oh my goodness. Well, they say you have to. I mean, the first seven holes is when you have to attack Pebble. Yeah. I mean, if you're not under par in the first seven, you're going you're gonna to be over par yeah. <laughs> by the time you come around to, uh, to 13 or so. Yeah, because you get to, you go through, I think eight might be the greatest golf hole I've ever seen. I love eight, nine, and ten are spectacularly difficult. Not only because they're so long, but you're playing off a downhill side hill, yeah. and it's that downhill side hill is making your ball find the ocean, mm -hmm. and you have to get really comfortable aiming away from where you're wanting the ball to go, and that's not easy for people. Yeah, I mean that's why I mean that's why I like Tiger at this course because they always talk about how he, sh I mean, his ability to hit the right shot at the right time, yeah. and if you have to work the ball right to left um, into a slope, he has that shot. If you have to work the ball left to right, I mean, he has that shot. And there's not a ton of players out there that are able to work it both ways and, and maintain their their flight. So yeah, it should be interesting. It should be really interesting. When I think of of Tiger, one is I thank him every day because he <laughs> he elevated the game way past my initial idol, which is Greg Norman. Greg Norman was the reason why I played golf. Oh, yeah. And, but Greg Norman was like, he, he just made golf cooler to watch. Tiger Woods brought like a different level of fans, a different level of understanding. And he came into the game 
at the exact same time that the technology and the video and all the cool stuff that allow a person to teach golf at a high level <laughs> and verify it became so true. And there isn't anything in golf that like blew me away, like his stinger. I'll never forget when he pulled it out in 2001 at Kapalua. The driver off the deck. I'll never forget it. I, I, I just I couldn't believe. <laughs> I remember on the, the one, two, the third hole at Kapalua, there was a 150-yard little stake in the fairway, and there was a bird sitting on it when Tiger hit his two-iron stinger that almost took the feathers off that guy. Yeah. And I was like, wait, did did I just see that? Did I just see a ball essentially stay 10 feet off the ground? For 220 yards. For 220 yards. <laughs> and roll another 40, 50, 60. How did he do that? And then, then he did it again. And he did it for all four days. And I'm like, whatever that was, I need to figure out what that shot was. That was cool. And that probably took me two years mm-hmm. to, one, realize that you really need to be outrageously strong and fast to pull that shot off. And I don't know if anybody. I guess Gary Woodland does yeah, it pretty I was good. Yeah, just say Gary, Gary Woodland's, Woodland's been doing it pretty good. But other than that, I mean, there are people that hit the ball low, but Tiger and Woodland are on a different level of control with that shot, and it just—it's <clears throat> a different level of str- of uh, strength and speed that they have. That they can de-loft it that much, rotate that cleanly. And still hit it solid. That's the real trick. Is that I mean, he would hit stinger cuts, <clears throat> which, like, to me is like, I don't know. Yeah. It's, I, I mean, I have a hard time cutting the ball as is. But, yeah. like, I mean, it just – and a, he would move it a lot. Yeah. Like, he just – and it was his go-to shot. He knew that no matter what, 440 yards, stinger two iron, he hits a seven iron better than most people hit their pitching wedge. Yeah. He'll be fine. You know, and that that strategy worked for a long time. Two thousand six at uh, what was at, at uh, Hoy Lake? Or? Hoy Lake, yeah. yeah. I think it's interesting now. He can't he can't do that anymore because he raised a group of guys to be better than him. Mm-hmm. Not that they'd be better than, him, but they studied him, and he became their benchmark. Yeah. So he has to drive the golf ball now. If he doesn't drive the golf ball, and he can't do what he did at Hoylake where he hit two drivers and both of them went 125 yards offline. And he's like, well, why am I going to do this? I'll he just... almost did it at Carnoustie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but almost. he hit it in the rough with an iron. Uh, twice, and it killed him. Yeah. And But he can't do that yeah. with Kepka and DJ and Rory and JT because if any one of those four guys are on, uh, along with m- multiple others, mm-hmm. if any one of those guys are on, he doesn't have a chance. He can't beat them from 50 yards behind him, 60 yards behind him. And, of course, he was hitting driver, and he was 35 behind Kepka all week at the first two days of Bethpage. And he got a chance to experience what it was like to be everybody else in 2000 and 2002. Yeah. It was like, whoa. He, I mean, obviously he was not feeling well, but, I mean, at the end of the day, he's Tiger Woods, and he got housed by 17 shots yeah. by Kepka. I think that – I mean, that, that – I was – I looked at that. I was like, this is perfect. Because I knew he wasn't, you knew he wasn't feeling well. He wasn't missing fairways by a lot, uh-uh. and that, but that's all it takes. I mean, five feet and thirty yards, same thing. I mean, sometimes thirty yards for Kepka, he hit a couple big sprays, oh, but yeah. he was in the matted down areas yep. and was able to get it home, yep. which is like old school Tiger. But Tiger was just missing fairways. He was just off. He wasn't feeling good. But man, I 
I guarantee that pissed him off. Yeah. And he, you know, he doesn't forget that stuff. And, you know, it's, it was, it'll be interesting. Kepka's the perfect antidote for Tiger because Kepka doesn't care. Mm-hmm. And I just, like, you could see now this is going to be a trend. PGA Championship, Masters, and now we're headed towards, and then we just had the PGA Championship. We're going to have a U.S. Open where you know they are both going to be in the mix. Oh, yeah. And I think that it's perfect because I think that so many people are intimidated by Tiger. And so many of the guys that we th- were hoping would get a chance to take down Tiger when if he ever could return, Rory, Spieth, DJ, the like, Kepka too. And then they got a chance to experience the Tiger at the Masters. Mm-hmm. They didn't enjoy it that much. But Kepka somehow did. He didn't mind. And then so he's taking him down twice, PGA Championship and PGA Championship, and lost by two was in second place Masters. at the Masters. He might end up being the real rivalry going forward and not who we thought it was going to be, which would probably be Spieth and McElroy. Yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting. I don't think that you know, I think who knows how, how how many years Tiger has left, and who knows? I mean, Rory went on this run, Spieth went on the same run, and now Kepka's and we run. haven't heard from we haven't heard from either of them. That's right. <laughs> we haven't heard good things, especially from Spieth, who's you know starting to turn around a little bit. But uh, you know, I always I just always equated Tiger to his. He was like you know the classic, you know no, you know what did he say in '98 or '99? It's like I didn't have my A game today, but he won. And the press was like, "What do you mean you didn't have your A game?" And his B game, his B minus game, was winning. Yeah. And I think that's what separates him. That's what separated him from everybody else is that when he was off, he still won. When Rory's off, he shoots seventy eight. Yeah. When Jordan's off, he hits shanks like and you know misses two footers. Like you know when they're off, like they go these do these slumps, and when they're off, they're really, really, really off. And It'd be interesting to see if Brooks, you know, can can maintain it and uh, and and be not a hundred percent and still, you know, he said he, he claimed he didn't hit the ball that well at the PGA, um, and he and he got his butt kicked a little yeah. bit on Sunday. That's right. Um, so, but the thing is that Tiger did it week in week out. Brooks is doing it in the major championships only. He hardly ever shows up to a, a PGA tour event. Yeah, but you heard what he said. He gets bored. So the majors are easier to win because, you know, 50% of the field, I mean, they probably even shouldn't be there. They just made it through some weird exemption. And then, you know, another 30% of the field probably is just going to do something stupid and shoot himself out of it. And then... Only have to beat 20 of them. 15, 20 guys you got to beat. And he just assumes that he's one of those guys that won't ever shoot himself out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that Pebble, I think, is going to be a real... It's really going to put him to the test. Smaller greens, really, really penal rough. Yeah. Not that Beth Page wasn't, but you know, having to lay back, having to hit a lot more wedges and shorter irons with you know, sketchy greens and yeah. crazy winds. I think you know, Shinnecock definitely put him to the test, but I think Pebbles a different will be a different beast. Certainly, if there's weather. That golf course needs Mother Nature. There's always wind. Is there ever not wind? I played it when there was about like eight. I, hardly, I was kind of disappointed. Yeah. 
I mean, but I, there's always. I mean, it's like it's it's hard. There's to, always wind. Usually there is. Yeah. Even if there's 15 miles an hour, which is a good amount of wind for most golf courses. Yeah, especially for those smaller greens. When you, when I think of that, what it's going to take for that, you're going to have to be looking at the guys who are the precision iron players, and and ha- they don't have to dry hit driver all the time. And other than that, is the person who can handle hitting a good putt, having it get bounced offline by the Poana greens and be okay with it. Yeah. Rory's not that guy. Mm. Rory doesn't do well. I don't think Jordan's that guy either. I don't think Jordan's that guy either. And we're starting to run out of those. I want Justin Justin's Thomas. Justin's not going to be that guy either. He's a baby. Yeah, he, he gets, gets mad. He gets he gets whiny. But like I, I keep on wanting Justin Thomas to get back in the fray mm-hmm. because he does have the total package. He's a mm-hmm. long, great iron player, and he's one of the few bombers that can putt. Mm-hmm. Kepka can putt. DJ just fired uh, Claude Harmon yeah. third. I almost fell over on that. But he's going to stay with Butch sometimes. It was a weird, it was a very weird. <laughs> yeah, he's got a variety of coaches. He's got Alan Terrell, who's his longtime coach over in South Carolina, that I think he's just kind of gravitated towards. But at the end of the day. He's just a grip. I mean, you know. He's just, he's just so like stinking hit good. ball, towards hole. Yeah. Know. He's so good. He's so talented. Look, he at Tom, look out for Tommy Fleetwood. I got yeah, Tommy Fleetwood is a good one. You know, I got my old, I got my fantasy team, so I'm I'm picking. I got one pick on U.S. Open. I'm picking Tommy Fleetwood. Yeah, Francesco Molinari's not a bad pick. Yeah, this so putting's been a little should, wonky. Should be interesting. Yeah. When you uh, look to recharge your batteries, and golf and wine are a significant part of that. What does music play a role in your life? You a big concert guy? Do you love music? What's your scoop on the music scene? Uh, music was everything to me. I mean, it was. I was a minor in college and got my master's in it, and I was all about it. I, I'm a drummer, live in, I breathe it. I mean, I, I listen to a ton of music. Um, with the industry I'm in, it is, it is not really conducive to going to a lot of shows because that's five nights a week. Yeah. You could go ahead and scratch, and so if a certain show falls on a certain night, it is what it is. And then the other two nights, I'm not always looking for a show, but... Um, you know, I grew up, really grew up on jazz, uh, so going to Rudy's Jazz Club is really just, has been awesome. Uh, and then, you know, got really into funk and soul and, and, and Latin a lot in uh, in, high, in high school and college. Uh, but I, I definitely can say that some of the most, I've been to, you know, hundreds of shows, and I went a ton in college and after college. I saw like 50 fish shows and the you know, suddenly Almond Brothers a ton uh-huh. of times and all that stuff. But the Ryman's a magical place, and it it's really probably the most magical experiences I've ever had. Bon Iver was there uh, two years ago, a year and a half ago, and I was just, you know, Tedeschi Trucks I've seen about four times there. It is just the ultimate, it is the ultimate venue to be, have that such, such a intimate experience with artists that typically play you know, they most artists play down to the Ryman. A handful play up to the Ryman. They're yeah. like, okay, we're going to play the Ryman. Can we sell 3,000 tickets or 2,800 tickets? Most artists sell six, seven, eight, ten thousand 10,000 on the regular and then play down to the Ryman because it's the Ryman. Yeah. The Ryman is so amazing. I've seen two shows there that made me cry. <laughs> I saw Coldplay right when... At Ru- the Ryman? At the Ryman when the Rush of Blood came out. Oh, wow. And it was so like every sound is so precise in mm-hmm. the rhyme, and it's it's stunning. And they say that we're the only city in the world that have two perfectly acoustic places, the the symphony and the rhyme. Yeah. 
and and I saw Eddie Vedder by himself. Oh, when he did he, that acoustic thing? And yeah. Totally spectacular. Yeah, it was like oh nine. Yeah. 10. Oh, so unbelievable. And but it's like they don't they almost like have to tune down they tone down their instrument volume because it's so perfect. It's almost mm-hmm. like Eddie was sitting right beside me playing guitar. Not not, not like I was in the twenty third row. It's real stuff, yeah. It's really powerful. It's interesting, uh, you know, with my my wife being from Brazil, you, know, you got into the Latin music. What are, what are your uh, influences in the Latin music world? Uh, so when I was a junior in college, I went to the University of Vermont. I was I took a Cuban ethnomusicology class, and we basically studied Cuban music and then the music of you know all the Caribbean and uh, Dominican and Puerto Rico. And I was in a lat in the Latin ensemble. The 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 jazz latin ensemble and um i just got inundated with uh you know Buena Vista social club and you know all that these um you know these these latin groups were sometimes eight ten twelve people deep and they all just played their part they just played this very simple rhythm or this simple um a lot of a lot of uh percussionists but they played very simple, straightforward rhythms, and uh, they added little subtleties. And there was just a, it was a really subtle but beautiful music that um, it taught me discipline, and taught me to stay in the pocket and not, you know, jazz. It's like do whatever you want, you know. And here are the parameters. Latin. It's like this is the groove, and you don't not play the groove. You just played this groove, and uh, taught me how to listen. To, and listen for those subtleties and how you need to compliment the singers and the soloists and uh, you know I can't really speak to a ton of artists but um, I got to travel to the Dominican and Puerto Rico that winter uh, unfortunately uh, we weren't allowed to go to Cuba at that time mm-hmm. uh, but um, it's it's the culture of that music is so deeply ingrained and in, in down there and um it's just a part of life. It's it's like how wine is a part of life in Italy and France and just a, another condiment to the table. Music is just everywhere. Yeah. Everybody plays it. And the best piano players, the best saxophone players, trumpet players, they all knew how to play the drums. They all knew how to play a hand drum, mm-hmm. a conga. And because that was the first thing that went in everybody's hand when they were a kid. Teach them rhythm, syncopation, patience and then they can play the instrument that they want to play but they got to learn the conga first interesting well it's easy to see how you became a psalm because we couldn't really tell if you were talking about wine or if you were talking about music right there that's, yeah it's pretty interesting what's the what's the greatest concert you've ever been to <laughs> wow the greatest wine was a lot easier than that <laughs> um shoot i think uh a couple I'll just name it two or three just because, you know, they're the, one of the greatest experiences I ever had was a Day Matthews show at Giant Stadium in New Jersey. Uh, there was, right before the encore, you started to see lightning in the distance. And he came out for the encore. Um, I think he played um, Space Between or Christmas Song or something like that. And then The Heavens, and he played Two Step, which is a very fun, like, pump-up song that's like 20 minutes long. And The Sky opened up it was torrential downpour 
<laughs> for that entire song. And then right as the song was over, the rain stopped. And that was one of those like magical moments yeah. where you're like, I don't know if I'll ever. And I had a moment like that with fish at Coney Island um, where it was pouring rain, you know, where you just, you're not thinking of anything else except like, you know, like, I can't believe this is happening. Yeah. Um, but seeing, uh, I think one of the coolest things I ever saw in my life was David Byrne um, at the Walmart Theater in Montclair, New Jersey, where I was working. Um, I was uh, lucky to see Morrissey and David Byrne and uh, Tony Bennett and John Legend, a bunch of amazing artists. But seeing David Byrne, um, the place was shaking. And um, that was one of the, that was probably the, one of the greatest concerts I've ever seen. But yeah. Bonnie Vera at the, the Ryman was pretty magical. Yeah. It's interesting because I've been fortunate to see two bands when they were the biggest act in the world, and the energy was so monumental. I'd love uh, to guess. I'd love to guess what one of them was. Go ahead. You two? No. No. Uh-uh. Oh. I always wanted uh, to see them. Yeah, me too. <clears throat> I would say uh, <clears throat> in 1992, there was nothing bigger than Guns N' Roses. Oh. And they had just come out with Use Your Illusion 1 and 2. And they were doing the super stadium tour with Metallica and Faith No More. Oh, my God. So the first show of the tour was at RFK, the old Redskins stadium. Oh, yeah. And I'm there. And they walk out. And Metallica walks out on stage. Actually, somebody walks out right before Metallica plays and says that Axel is still in prison in St. Louis for starting the riot. And he may not be here for tonight's show. So Metallica has agreed to play an extended show. And a, a, a normal Metallica show is like two hours and 40 minutes. So Metallica absolutely crushed it for three hours and 35 or 40 minutes. Totally amazing. Hmm. And so after Metallica leaves... You could tell people were starting to bail because it was a hundred degrees, and it was it was coming to the the end where you're thinking that guns isn't showing. So a guy walks out on the stage about ten thirty and says that if the show doesn't start by eleven, they can't start. And be a reminder that the the subway closes at one a.m. if you rode the subway here. <laughs> so it's. 1048 the stadium lights are still on and I'm like I cannot believe that I'm not going to see Guns N' Roses and you had never seen them I had seen them maybe two years prior with Skid Row which was also a really good show but at about 49 the lights go off and like 45 seconds later a helicopter flies over top of RFK and at about 10 and like yeah it's 10.55, you see a lit cigarette walk up to the microphone. Do you know where you are? And it was amazing. They played oh until like 2.20 a.m. Oh, my God. I was the tiredest I've ever been because Faith No More came on at 3 and, and Guns N' Roses ended at 2.20. And it was 100 degrees. I probably drank 4,000 gallons of water that day. It was so hot. And then I saw Pearl Jam at... Uh, and 95 at Soldier Field on the Grateful Dead stage after Jerry Garcia played his last show ever. And that was when the Ticketmaster thing was going on. And you, well. you, it was a fervor that was unbelievable. 
Yeah, music is uh, music runs me too, man. I'm right there with you on that. Last question uh, before we hit you with the big one. Uh, favorite sporting event? What was the greatest event that you've ever been to sporting? I so I went to the Masters for the first time two years ago in seventeen when Sergio won, and I was but I was there as a I was working. I was working um, the company. Our chef was cooking for the CEO of IBM and a bunch of other CEOs. So we were doing events Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night. So I was able to go to the Masters Saturday and Sunday morning. There was barely anybody on the golf course. I just walked the whole course by myself. That was magical, but I wasn't like in it. Like there wasn't things happening. You know, it wasn't. That was the thing I was the most excited for ever. Uh um, it's either the Stanley Cup um, when they played the Penguins, the Preds played the Penguins two years ago, or uh, I got to see playoff base, Yankees playoff baseball. Uh, I don't wow. think there's anything better. That's awesome. It, you know, the old Yankee Stadium, it was in um, 95 against the Mariners, and I was in uh, fifth grade or sixth grade, and the place shook, and... You know, Yankee baseball is. Uh, I I grew up with it. My family is all all Yankee fans, and uh, that was probably that's something I'll never forget. That's awesome. Final question: If you uh, were ever given a superpower, <laughs> what what would be your what would what would be your superpower, and what would you use it for? Superpower. So we had we we were asking this with our staff. Um, we always ask weird roundtable questions with our staff just to kind of lighten things up before for a service. And we did talk about superpower. Um, man, uh, <laughs> it's you know you never want to like pick something that's really weird that like you'll do for weird reasons. Um, you know, I wouldn't – time machine is always, you know, a, a good one. Do I want to go back in time? You know, I think it's good to kind of embrace what you have. Um, I think uh, – ah, oh, man. I wish I could fly. Yeah. Because – and, like, fast. Yeah. <laughs> I'm talking, like – Superman fast. Like, crazy fast. Uh Cause then you know, I just grab my wife, you know, you know, hop, tell her to hop on, and let's just let's go somewhere real quick. Yeah, let's just you know, let's get out of here. It'd be um, a great way to escape certain, yeah, certain stresses and pains. Yeah, it just you know, because if you can get there quick and get back quick, just take a day trip to Bali. Yeah, <laughs> like I'm. Yeah, I mean, if we're talking superpowers. You know, you can ask for as much as you want out of a superpower, and I, I want I want speed. Speed in the air. <laughs> no doubt about it. Yeah, well, Tim, thank you so much for taking the time out of your business schedule to come on The Verge. Thank you. I look forward to hanging out with you really soon. Have Thanks, a great one. Cheers. Place. Callaway isn't just pushing the boundaries of driver technology. They're pushing ball speed further than humanly possible. 
The new Epic Flash driver with Flash Face technology features Callaway's first ever driver face engineered with artificial intelligence. By harnessing this power, Callaway was able to create, test, and refine over 15,000 different faces to find the absolute fastest one. The way speed is created has been completely transformed. Learn more at callawaygolf.com slash AI.